If you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing our series on prayer. And you may have noticed that, uh, as Dave mentioned earlier, that our summer bulletins are actually uh, tools we'd like for you to use as a prayer guide this summer to kind of help you dive into this. And let me give you a little tip on, um, on the side that has just a bunch of lines and it says, uh, like, sermon notes. Uh, some of you are in the custom of just writing down everything the speaker says. And I want to encourage you to take notes a little differently this summer. And that is to listen to what God has specifically for you this summer. In other words, today, listen to what is the Lord saying to you about prayer that you're going to take out of here. So your notes may be very small or it may be scripture verses, but really make this personal. So if you don't have a pencil, then uh, just jump up and start running around the room and somebody will get you a pencil because that would be way too disruptive for the rest of the service. Okay, wow. Are we awake this afternoon? You know, it's funny, uh, my mom has been here all week long, and uh, my mom is, for all her faults, uh, is a weird, funny bird, and uh, she is like, she's like Walgreens' dream, you know, uh, like especially during the holidays, she always buys those things, you know those things like at Halloween when you walk past them, they have motion sensors, and they go, you know, or like she loves that kind of stuff. And, uh, or like Christmas, you know, or like, she, she, but she always buzzes the inappropriate ones too, like the guy who moons you, you know, when you walk by. <clears throat> and uh, anyway, so we're taking her this morning to go meet her brother because she's leaving and she says, hey, I got a couple of books I've read. Do you want me to just leave them with you guys? And uh, I said, well, what do you got? And she said, well, here's a book calling Becoming a Powerful Woman of Prayer. I said, wow, did you read that? And, uh, you know, I'm, we're in the prayer series, something, and hey, all right. She goes, yeah, I read it. And I said, so is it true? Are you now a powerful woman of prayer? She goes, no, it didn't work. And then she pulled out the other book. And I thought, that's just, that's so true. That's kind of, it's kind of like us, that we read a lot, we hear a lot, and it has such little impact. Like last night, we were sitting down, and she goes, you know, I'd love to watch a movie. And we have Comcast, which if you have it, you have access to how many movies? You know, you can go on demand. And I said, Mom, I got like 100 on-demand free movies. There's got to be something. She goes, okay, well, how does it work? And I'm showing her, and she goes, oh, that's just too confusing. And she goes, forget it. Forget the movie. Just put it back on regular TV. We put it back. And she put it on uh, the, what is it called? Uh, it's the Dog or Me. It's some show about somebody's pet who's gone crazy, and they can't bring him under control. And so we turn it on and she goes, yeah, I've seen this one before. And I said, well, mom, we can change it to, no, we'll just watch this. This is fine. And I thought, you know, it's so funny because, and then about halfway through, she goes, yeah, I've seen this one like three times. It's just funny because we, we are just like that. We get stuck in these ruts where something new is too confusing or it's too difficult or we're cynical about it or we get tons of information and we get overload of the brain, and it really doesn't have much impact. Like tonight, could be just another church service. It could be just another person talking about prayer and just one more brick in the wall of what you're not or what you're not becoming. So I really want to challenge you to consider that tonight what we're going to talk about is kind of a paradigm shift for you. You know, there have been some big paradigm shifts over time, like when they discovered that the world was not flat, 
I mean, it was a big paradigm shift when they said, okay, now the world is round. We can actually sell over the horizon. It radically changed uh, civilization at that time. That's a paradigm shift. And what we're going to talk about tonight really is in that category of a paradigm shift, especially for professional Christians. And what I mean by that is, if this is a pretty common place for you, like, okay, we sang the song, sang this before, you know, opening prayer, I'm not freaking out, okay, we talked about Jesus, heard that before, that this is really comfortable for you, this could be a paradigm shift for you tonight. Because we've been talking about, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about prayer, and the first thing we said was that when we step into prayer, we're stepping into the divine, In Psalm 139, we discovered that the divine holds a deeper understanding of myself than I do. The divine understands, God understands my life and all the circumstances around it. He also understands everything. And when I step into prayer, I'm stepping into that world where Jesus and the Holy Spirit is interceding for me continually. Then last week, we talked about how prayer is the answer of an invitation by God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door and I will come in and meet with you and be with you. But when we reach for this door here, we need to come to it with courageous persistence, watchfulness, and also thankfulness. Remember we talked about that. And we've been talking about prayer for two weeks. We haven't gotten to anything where we've had to say any words yet in prayer. Isn't that odd? Maybe not. Well, this week we're going to talk about what do we say when we walk into that room. What words do we bring in that place? Because the disciples asked Jesus the same thing. He said, they said, how do we pray? And in Matthew 6, he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And if you were in uh, Matthew 6, look at verse 9. Jesus gives them some little uh, direction on how to pray. But we're going to jump right into the prayer. Because the first thing he says this, Our Father in heaven. Let's stop. Those four words right there. Now, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but I want to say to you tonight that prayer is one of the most simplest, most powerful things that God has given us. It's so simple that even a child can come to it. In fact, Jesus starts with us understanding prayer as a child would understand prayer. I don't know if the Garrett's are here tonight. Are the Garrett's here tonight? You know, they have a little daughter, Sydney, and uh, almost for four months now, I've been trying to get Sydney to actually come over and talk to me. And she's just so little. And so I'll kneel down and I'll just, hey, Sydney. And she freaks out, you know, weird man alert starts going off and she starts running around and she'll tease me, but she always never gets very far from mom and dad. And when she gets a little weirded out by me, she makes a beeline for her dad. And you know what's funny about that is that's a perfect picture of prayer because there's no hesitation in her when she comes to her father. When it's coming to me, there's lots of hesitation, as many of you have experienced. But going to her, there's no fear whatsoever. Matter of fact, if, if I'm chasing her around and she falls and she's in pain, daddy. If she's laughing, daddy. If she's excited, daddy. And daddy always receives her. Matter of fact, if you're a dad in here tonight, there, there is nothing more powerful in your life, I would guess, than when your children say, Daddy. 
It can be in the middle of the night. Daddy. We wake up, what? It can be on the playground. It can be somebody other's kids that says, Daddy, and you're immediately looking for your kids. It could be in a place like this, and you're a beeline. It's almost like it's, it's like a string to our heart that just kind of reels us in. And what Jesus is saying here is that's true about our Father as well, that he wants us to understand God as a Father. Now, you may say, well, okay, I've heard that before. That's not so radical. Where's the paradigm shift in that, you know? Well, let me challenge you to think about this a little bit. There is no reference to God as Father anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, we see the most two common names, Elohim and Yahweh, are used for God. And there are attachments to those, those uh, names. Elohim, uh, El Shaddai, maybe you've heard that before, the God Almighty. Or El Olam, the everlasting God. Or Yahweh, or Jehovah, maybe you've heard Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Sabbatoth, Roy, the Lord is my shepherd. That all these names for God that describe him, and these were such reverent names, that those who transcribed the Bible, whenever they would come to the name of God, they would actually stop what they were doing. They would pray, they would wash their hands and go through a ritual before they would come back and write the name of God because it was so reverent to them. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we see any prophet, do we see anyone of Israel referring to God as Father. And here comes Jesus. Jesus steps on the scene, and what he's saying to us tonight is all those names of God that we learned about in the Old Testament, all those things that describe God and his strength, and he's mighty, and he is a divine warrior, and he is the banner over his people, you know, and he's the healer, he's the conqueror, all these things in the Old Testament— Jesus said they can all be wrapped up in one word, daddy. That was so offensive to the Jews that in John, we find out that when he referred to God as the father, they they picked up stones and they were going to kill him for doing that. How dare you do that? That you make yourself equal with God, referring to God with such familiar terms as if you're actually in the family with God. Okay, maybe you've heard that before too. And maybe you say, well, Jesus could do that because we find in John 3.16 that he is the only begotten son. That he is a son, and a son refers to his daddy, his father. But here's the radical part. Because remember, Jesus is teaching us to pray. And it's that little word that he uses at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, are. See, Jesus isn't just saying, hey guys, disciples, midtown, God is my father. He is saying, join me in this. God is our father. Our father. How is it possible that we could step right next to Jesus and harmonize with his voice and say to to God, our our father, right? Our father? He's ours, right? Unless we understand a little bit about what Christ has done. Martin Luther called it uh, passive righteousness, meaning when Jesus was born, he was born of the Virgin Mary, that there was no sin that he inherited from his father, and then he lived a perfect life. He was God in the flesh, without sin, 
And when he went to the cross, this is something that we can be certain of. He didn't go to the cross to pay for any crime that he had committed. He wasn't dying for any sins for himself. He was dying for our sins. He was perfect. He was holy. He was without blemish. And here's the crazy thing. For Jesus to say, hey, Randy, come on, we're going to call God our Father. He first had to give me something that I could not get on my own. And that is his position in the family. He gave me his righteousness. He's like, here, take this. (laughs) A free gift that he gave me his perfect righteousness. And he ushered me in so that I could be a part of the family of God. You've heard this before. It's kind of like if we came to a judge and we'd committed just unbelievable amount of crimes. It's one thing, and we can understand if the judge says, we will pardon you. You are free to go. It's another thing if the judge jumps down from the bench and says, and you're going to come home and live with me because now you're my boy. What? But that's exactly what God does through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross, paid for all of our sins to remove them and cleanse us perfectly, and then put his arm around us and said, now you're a part of the family. Okay. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, let me suggest a couple things that it means. One is, I can't live like an orphan any longer. (laughs) What are you saying? Well, if I'm not part of God's family, if I'm not part of the family of the one who made all things, then I'm an orphan. I have no family. And what are the marks of an orphan? I was thinking about this this week, and, you know, I was trying to imagine, well, what's true about orphans in the darkest sense? And I know there are beautiful stories about orphans that have been adopted, and I'm talking about the purest sense of the dark side of having no father. They're on their own. They have no name. They have no history. They have no resources by which to inherit or a family that's championing them or a father to say, here, take my car. My kids don't have that either. They have no support. They are all alone. All alone. And let me, let me try to explain what I think are the two extremes of orphan living. And there's a lot of variations in the middle. But the first extreme on this side of orphan living is the mentality that I'm a victim. I'm a victim. The world is flat. I have no paradigm shift. I am a victim. See, you don't understand what I've been through. I'm the product of a cruel world. I'm just waiting for the hammer to fall. I've come to expect bad things to happen to me. I really don't believe that I have a lot of value. I don't really have a voice. I don't really have a say. I'm really sorry for everything. You know, when I'm living in this mentality that I'm a victim, then I really believe that self-protection becomes my highest value. That I have to protect myself. I have to stay where it's safe. And I have to do everything I can to keep myself from ever being exposed. And so I do things like have three conversations when I go to parties. You know what I mean? Have you ever done this where you're thinking about what you're going to talk about when you get to the party? And then you're thinking about it again while you're at the party and saying, what did I just say? And then when you leave the party, all you can think about is what you said when you were at the party. That this insecurity is swelling to such a point to where it can almost paralyze you to where you say, I'm never going to go to another party. 
That's way too unsafe for me. Or have you ever done that on a date? Never. Do any of you ever date? You know, if you're married, you can date too. Here's another thing that happens when I'm living as a victim. When I'm, when I'm an orphan and I'm all alone and I don't believe anybody is championing for me and the world is against me and I'm just a simple victim of this dark world that's moving against me, I complain. I'm a complainer. Now let me tell you why I think complaining is the language of the victim orphan. Complaining really is the pornography of groaning, isn't it? Everybody understood. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, you, when you think about it, complaining really is just an artificial cheap substitute of something much deeper. What's much deeper is the pain and groan of our struggle. But when I don't want to go to the pain and groan of my struggle, when I don't want to dare go into my heart, because trust me, if you're trying to stay in safe places, the first place you need to avoid is your heart. That is not a safe place. It is a wild land that will not be conquered by your fears. I have to stay in a safe place and complaining becomes my language because complaining gives me a detour around my heart instead of taking the path of groaning which takes me through my heart. Let me give you an example. The other day, uh, I decided I needed to get a trailer hitch for my Jeep because my motorcycle needs to go to the shop and I needed to borrow a trailer. And so I've got this whole plan strategized in my mind and I can't wait to get my motorcycle back on the road because, I mean, it's summer, the sun, and it's just, it's not running and I hate that. And so I went to the U-Haul place and my, I talked to the mechanic and I said, man, I will be there in an hour. And he goes, okay, I, I got to leave town in two hours, so you better get here. I said, no problem. So I show up at the U-Haul place, and I say, I need a hitch. I need a trailer. And it was like one comical error after another. First, they had the hitch, but they couldn't get it on my Jeep. So, uh, so I had to go home and get my own hammer and pound it onto the trailer hitch. Once I got it on, I went back to the trailer, and then I didn't have wires that attached to the trailer. And they didn't have the wire harnessed for a Jeep, so we couldn't do that. Then they didn't have the pin that actually fit my Jeep so that I could actually do that. And then I said, well, I'll just borrow a friend's trailer and not worry about the wire harness. Went to his house, and his hitch wouldn't work. And I'm sitting there. Now I've got 15 minutes before Earl hits the road for the weekend. And I'm out of my mind. And it's so easy to complain then isn't it? Instead of going into the groaning of saying, God, what are you doing here? An orphan says, why does all these things happen to me? I can't believe all this chaos. Nothing's going right. It seems like every time I turn around, one more obstacle after the other that's just working against me to get this done so that I can go home and eat dinner. That's an orphan. What does the son say? God, what are you doing working in this? Are you trying to work patience into my life? Have you got to be kidding me? Talk to me. Lead me through this. So when I walk into the journey of being a victim, of being an orphan, it never allows me to step into my heart because I only live in situations whether they're working for me or not working for me. And most of the time, they're not working for me. And life kind of stinks. My greatest fear when I live like a victim is everything. 
because everything reinforces the view I have of myself. And it darkens my view of people, and it darkens my view of things and situations. Matter of fact, people that live in the victim, uh, they, they live in a world where the people around them are constantly required to prove their love to them. Because when you love someone that lives in the place of victim, they never believe it. Because they never believe that they're lovable. Well, what's on the other end of this spectrum? Well, it's not a victim. No way. On this end of the spectrum of orphan living is, I will take control of my life. I will live it on my own terms. And I will get what I want. I will not be denied. I'm going to make life work. No one's going to hurt me like the victim. No one's going to take control of my life. I'll get the stuff that'll make it better. And what's the fear of someone who lives on this side of watch me conquer the world? Well, the greatest fear would be failure. Or maybe the greatest fear is poverty. Or maybe the greatest fear is boredom. Don't get still. Don't get quiet. Keep conquering. Maybe the greatest fear is loneliness. Or maybe punishment. Or this one hit me. The greatest fear over here, and maybe some of you will understand this, is ugly. Not that the fear is ugly, that you fear ugly. Meaning there's something in your life that you can't control that's going to keep you from living out the dream that you have for you. Does that make sense? See, the language of this side isn't complaining. No, I'm going to take the world and I'm going to conquer it. They don't complain, they judge. They compare. They compete. They can't celebrate other people's victories because it, it means that they're not victorious. They're constantly comparing themselves to other people. How do I do? How do I look? How do I smell? And judging other people because it's easier to push other people down because it makes you feel like you're pushing yourself up. But it's all orphan living. On both ends of the scale, it's orphan living because it's the belief that I'm alone. Jesus was revolutionary because he stepped in a world of orphans. He did. He stepped into a whole world of orphans and he whispered in their ear like he's whispering in our ear tonight and saying, Would you say, our father, our father? You're not an orphan anymore. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 4. Paul is talking about this. This is Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we may receive the full rights of sons. We received his passive righteousness. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. Let's break this down real quick. Let's take a few minutes, and then we're going to slide home with some application, okay? What this passage says, first of all, is that we've been justified. That Jesus has removed our sins. Justification, a good definition, it's it's just as if we'd never sinned. That we are cleansed and pure and blameless in the sight of God. Wow, Jesus did that for us. But the very next thing he tells us that he did was he made us sons and daughters. He brought us into the family. And the third thing he did was he gave us the Holy Spirit. 
And that Holy Spirit's now dwelling in us. Well, what's he doing in there? I mean, if you're a Christian tonight, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. What's he up to? I'll tell you what he's up to. Romans 8 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Not a, you're not given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When I was a little guy and I was in third grade, I played baseball. And um, in our league, and one of my best friends was Greg Dugdale. And he was one of those guys that shaved in the third grade. I mean, he was a giant of a third grader. Like, he had hair on his legs. We thought that was, dude, like, what's in your armpit? You know, and he, but he was just a giant guy. And Greg always, when he, he just home run king, you know. And when he, he just looked like a man, you know, in the midst of boys. And Greg uh, is so funny because Greg and I have a history that, uh, like, I got caught smoking for the first time in third grade with Greg underneath my dad's boat in the backyard. Greg was so scared. He's such a wuss, even though he was a big guy. Well, let me tell you what Greg did. In our hometown, I played for a professional pharmacy, which scarred all of us because they always put the initials of your team name on your hat. Think about that for a minute. I'm serious. So all of us went around with PP on our hat. And, uh, but Greg was awesome because every, every week they would put the stats of the Little League Baseball in the newspaper. So if you got a hit, like if you got a double, your name got in the newspaper. So whenever you got a good hit, you always look into the newspaper and cutting it out like, hey, my name. They never spelled it right. You know, Randy Dragon, you know, always wrong. <laughs> But, you know, here's what was remarkable. And this, I'll just share a little of my heart. In the shadow of Greg, this man boy who, who hit home runs, I, I, I believed I was a horrible baseball player. I could never hardly get the ball outside the infield. My first hit was when I was dodging the ball and the bat hit the ball by accident. That was really my first hit. Popped out over. It was the longest hit I had in third grade. <laughs> I did not believe in the shadow of Greg that I was a good baseball player. And here's what Greg would do. He'd always say, oh, dude, you're awesome. You're great. No, really, really, you're good, man. You're, I saw how you caught that fly last week. And then when those rare occasions where my name got in the newspaper, Greg would grab it. And he would, he would grab, you know, he would grab me down here. <laughs> and he would go, look, dude, even the newspaper believes you're a great baseball player. Why was he doing that? He was giving testimony to me. He was saying, look, I'm giving you proof. It's in print, even though they misspelled your name. I'm putting my arm around you. I'm calling you my friend. And I'm telling you that you're a good baseball player. That was Greg. That was love. The Holy Spirit is doing that with us. He's in our lives. He's in our heart. And he's crying out, Abba, Father. And he's saying, say it with me. Come on, say it with me. Join me. You're a son. You're a daughter. Give up the orphan living. Step into the benefits of being in the family. 
That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's begging us to put down this broken, orphan life that we've inherited in this world. And he's asking us to step into the divine and hear things that we never believed that we could hear. That's why Jeremiah 33.3 is so powerful. He says, come and sit with me, visit with me, and I will tell you things that you have never known. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And then finally, it says, not just justified, not just sons, not just put the Holy Spirit in us that's constantly speaking to us, but also heirs. We are inheritors of the kingdom of God, for God's sake. Literally. Watchman Nee, he tells uh, the story of this man who came to him in great distress. And this man said to Watchman Nee, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. And Nee said, do you see this dog there? He's my dog. He's house trained. He never makes a mess. He's obedient. He's a pure delight to me. But out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He's a total mess. But who's going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. We are Christ's heirs, not through our perfection, but by the means of his grace. Every time I sin, I turn my back on that truth and say, God, I'll go my own way and find what I want. The greatest story of that is the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you've read it in Luke chapter 15 where he gets from his dad and his inheritance and said, I'm going to go live my own life. And it's interesting. We talked about this this week at the Art of Kissing is that he was in the pig slop and he was hungry. He'd lost all his money. He was poor. And it says he came to his senses. And his senses said, I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to say to my dad, Dad, I'll just come back and work as your servant because even your slaves uh, live better than I'm living right now. So he's got this plan in his mind. This is his senses that he's come to, that I'm going to come back and I'm going to negotiate with my dad and renegotiate my identity. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable what orphan living does? It actually causes us to believe that we can negotiate a new identity for ourselves. So he says, I'll just come back and be your servant. What did the father do? Well, let me tell you a little bit about your father. He's a running father. As soon as he saw the son, he started to run for his son. And as soon as he embraced his son, he invited his son into his senses. He's calling his son, you abandon your senses. This negotiation for position, that's hogwash. He says, let me tell you, you're going to come into my senses. And what was the senses of the father? The senses of the father was he started to hug and kiss his son. It was the overwhelming delight of the father that caused the son to put down his senses and his need to negotiate and be embraced by one who understood him better than he did. Hmm. Immediately, he began to heal his son's shame because he called his servants together and he said, put a ring on his finger. And he put the ring on his finger and you can almost hear him say, remember who you are. Remember your name. 
That's the crest of our family. That's what you're in. Now put the robe on his shoulder. Remember your position. You're a son with authority now. And then remember how deeply you're loved. Kill the fatty calf. Let's go to the banquet. And what did the son do? I love this part. Because the son did nothing but allow himself to be kissed. He did nothing but allow himself to wear the robe his father put on him. He did nothing but leave the ring on his finger. He did nothing but come to the banquet and be filled with joy that his father loves him that deeply. See, Jesus has done all this for us. Tim Keller said the astonishing bottom line of sonship is that God now treats us as if we've done everything Jesus has done. We're treated as if we're only sons like Jesus. We can approach God as if we were a beautiful, heroic, and as faithful as Jesus himself. We are joint heirs with him. Now we look like him to the Father. So how do we do that? Okay, now we're sliding home. You know, it's been um, moving into this building the last three weeks. It has kicked me in half. It's been hard. It's really been hard for me, man. It's just the, the spiritual warfare, the, all the old demons of, you know, being in a place that smells like a church. And, and Carter and I are best of friends. We spent a lot of time together this week. But for some reason, it just, it has worn me out to be here. And as I've processed it, as I've taken the time to, to choose not to complain, but, but to groan. Because it's painful. And life is painful. And God invites us into our hearts where there is much groaning going on. Because what we are, we are not there yet. I began to realize that in my pain, the tearful pain of this transition, this hardship, were some profound fears that were in my heart. I was really fearing that we were losing who we were. Losing who we are as Midtown. Losing a sense of this passionate call that God's given us to be a light for the city. That we were losing some of that. And get this, and it's my fault. Isn't it funny how pain has such a unique way of taking itself and shaming us? to where it shuts our mouth and causes us to turn away from the one thing that gives us life. I started living like an orphan. And I started asking questions like, what am I going to do? How do we fix this? (laughs) And the Lord said, wow, you are such a loser. He said it in a loving way, though. And brought me back to himself. And just reminded me of his promises and the promises he had for us as a community and the promises that he has for us in this city and the promises he has for this crazy ragamuffin crowd of people that most of you are a bunch of should have beens, used to beens, could have beens, that all of us come hobbling in here every week, none of us taking up the banner and saying we're going to conquer the world, but believing that we serve a God that is not compromised and not messy and not a ragamuffin at all, but he loves messy sinners like us. And he is calling us to call him Father. Well, that's taken a lot of energy over the last two weeks. A lot of energy. A lot of time in prayer. A lot of time in the Word. And guess what? Not a lot of sleep. It's been crazy. But you know, that's the kind of stuff the Father does. 
when he's drawn us to himself. Now, I tell you that story uh, for no other reason than for me to ask you, where are you struggling? Where are you living like an orphan? Where have you said, no, I'll do it myself, I'll get it done, or this is hopeless, there's nothing good that can come out of this. I just wring my hands and just are, or I'm going to take up the banner and forget this. Where are you struggling? Where are you living as if God's promises are not true for you? Well, let's pause and think about that for a moment. Where are you? Where is your orphan? Can we pray together? Join with me. I thank you, Father, that this is the simplest prayer that we can possibly pray tonight. Like bruised and dirty children running to their dad. And we, uh, we just say it, our Father. Our Father. Heal us of our lost identity. Forgive us for trying to wear clothes that don't fit us. We repent of our orphan living. See where we're struggling, where fear has caused us to run away from you instead of run to you. Restore our dignity, Father. Put the ring back on our fingers. Help us to remember who we are. Put the robe on our back. Help us to remember the position that you've put us in. Kiss us and hug us. And give us the joy of the honor of coming to the banquet table where you delight in us. Amen. Hey, before we, uh, before we sing some songs and kind of take what God's doing in your heart and let it be worshipped, let me just say this last thing, the uh, risk of going long. Uh, I know that for some of you, the word father sticks in your mouth. That maybe your experience, uh, this whole idea of father, this, th- those aren't pleasant experiences for you. And... I just want to encourage you that this can very well be a season of healing for you. Where what's restored unto you is the understanding that our heavenly father may not, have been, may not be like your earthly father. That he's restoring the idea of a father to you. And an understanding of father. 
And part of this journey of prayer may be this season of healing, of being brought into the divine and understanding yourself, but also understanding him in ways that you never have. And some of you need to work through that, I know. It may be the very thing that keeps you from ever walking through that door of being with the Lord. And I just want to challenge you that, uh, and encourage you that if that's you and you feel stuck, you know, uh, there are people in this community that would like to walk with you and help you unstick. Um, and I just encourage you not to live in the shadows with that. You don't have to live in that. It's even the Lord agrees. <laughs> you know? But seriously, I encourage you to do that. And let me add this last thing. And for some of you, you're just kind of neutral on the whole thing. And I want to challenge you to think about how to practice what we're talking about here on Sunday morning. Otherwise, it's just good stuff that we talk about when we get together on Sunday. But how will you sit and camp out and let the idea of a Father in Heaven begin to heal you and heal, heal your view of God and heal your view of the world that you live in? Will you dare to do that?